everyone. Welcome to episode eight of the Cassandra Properties podcast. We have a wonderful guest joining us today, Matthew Rappaport. He is uh, one of the smartest guys I know, quite honestly. And uh, I, I don't say that, you know, loosely. He's someone that I had met a couple of years ago, blew me away with his background and knowledge on uh, opportunity zones, which is going to be the value for today. We always try and deliver value here on the podcast. And today we're going to take a really deep dive into opportunity zones. Matthew has been an unbelievably steady influence in some of the decision-making we're doing here. We're, we're trying to get geared up now to do a lot more work in the opportunity zones and in and, and the opportunity funds. So with that, let's welcome today's guest, Matthew Rappaport from Falcon Rappaport and Berkman PLLC. Matthew, how are we doing? Thanks a lot, James. I'll tell you, it's a, as soon as I saw that you gentlemen were doing a podcast, the first thing I had to say was, I, I gotta get on this thing. You know, I, I, I kind of make myself an appearance, so I'm very honored that you asked me. Well, we're honored for you to join. Uh, our conversations have always been very productive, very informative, and uh, we're taking a lot of our cues from you out here trying to get folks informed first in the opportunity zone, opportunities for lack of a better term, and what they have to offer. So let's just real quick, Matthew, give a, a quick introduction to the audience. Uh, let's tell us a little bit of background. Where are you from? Uh, wh wh you know, what are the, what, what's made Matthew the, the guru that he is today? A little bit about your firm, and then we'll jump right into the OZs. Very, very glad you use that terminology, by the way. I, uh, so I don't have to use it to refer to myself. I jumped on the OZ program almost the minute it was released. The OZ program was a sleeper inside of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There were major headlines about what the TCJA had in it, what its impact was going to be on taxpayers, and the opportunity zones until it became clear that the governors of each of the states would be designating areas that were really hot for development as opportunity zones. A lot of people thought it would be just another niche program. There had been programs like it tried by previous administrations with a mixed bag of success. New Marcus Tax Credit, for instance. Spurs of investment wasn't really a nationwide phenomenon, a little more of a niche type of thing. Low-income housing credits, they work, but they're a pain, mostly done by larger investors and larger institutions. A little bit of success, but not really what the uh, government was looking for in terms of a revolution. I think in the Opportunity Zone program, what the government was going for was something sweeping, something that was a big splash. And as momentum built in the wake of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I said to myself, look, this is an opportunity. I start from scratch like everybody else. I have a decade in practice. And there were folks who were in the tax bar who had more decades than me. And what I saw in the OZ program was the opportunity to get right out on top of it, study something from scratch, and become an expert. And I threw myself into it. And I took every chance I could to speak about it, to become involved when it came to the government's efforts to try and shape the program. That included the IRS's regulations and other similar efforts. And I said, I will do what it takes to become somebody who really knows this program down to the last detail. And uh, I would say, based on the judgment of some of the clients and some of the other people that I'm in contact with in the business world, it's been a success, which is very rewarding. So that's the short story about how I got to where I am in terms of OZ knowledge. Well, without question, um, you know, we've spoken to our share of, of folks that operate in the space and by far and away, you have been the most productive in, insofar as the conveyance of the information, but the depth of, of detail and there's so much nuance. I mean, every nook and cranny, because we've looked at this from a, a few different ways, uh, you know, doing a raise, um, rolling forward our own gains, others gains, hybrids there, there of both. Uh, and you've had answers, I have to say, at every at every turn here. I think we originally met is uh, and what what had first kind of 
rang the bell in my head. You had done a presentation for SIEDC on this. Isn't that correct? Yes, but I think we had even met beforehand. Yeah, well, we, that's right. yes. yeah, we may have met earlier, but regardless, I think that was the first significant interaction we had about the value that I could bring to you on OZs. Yeah, so let's let's take it from the top. Uh, we wanted to really slow it down, if we could, for the audience, get them interested in and informed, really, in all of the detail. Um, and, and I know that we uh, obviously we can't do that in every nuance, but let's take a few scenarios and let's explain to people in, in plain language. What are the opportunities out there today? How do you qualify? Uh, how do you find out if a property is in an OZ? Let's go like back to the very, very basics. How do we find out if it qualifies? Where can we find the OZ maps? And then what steps do you have to take to make an investment? What investments qualify? And then we can even talk about the business opportunities uh, for the OZs as well. So if folks are, are interested in, in doing this, where do they find out if a piece of property qualifies? So... Even before we get to how to find out if your property is eligible, what I ought to do is I ought to take it from the top and talk about what the OZ program is and how it came to be. The OZ program, believe it or not, was first conceived under the Obama administration. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was Trump, but it was under Obama that the OZ program actually got started. But given the gridlock in Congress, it didn't go anywhere because Congress at that time in the second half of the Obama administration was controlled by the GOP. So a, an Obama administration lawyer, for lack of a better description, by the name of Steve Glickman, conceived of the OZ program as a way to accomplish goals from both sides of the political aisle. On the GOP side, you would be giving a tax break to private investors. On the Democratic side, you would be spurring investment in low-income communities, which are typically controlled by Democratic politicians and vote heavily Democrat in elections at every level of government. So by taking the two constituencies, the private investors who lean GOP and the folks in low-income communities who lean Democratic, and, and generally speaking, it's the Democrats who are traditionally advocating more for those folks, you would be able to get a double whammy, so to speak. You'd be able to get the private investors the tax breaks they're looking for, but for constructive purposes so that the folks who are just regular income earners and have a regular net wealth aren't complaining all the time that all of these tax breaks that are put forth for private investors never benefit them. So the concept of the program was provide a tax break to private investors to invest in low-income communities. It got off the ground in the Obama administration. It was Steve and a couple of other people. And then Steve left the Obama administration when Trump was elected president. He started what was known as the Economic Innovation Group. EIG, the Economic Innovation Group, had a partner who many people will know by the name of Sean Parker. Sean Parker founded Napster, later went on to be an early investor in Facebook and got himself played in a movie by Justin Timberlake. Not too bad. Not too bad. So what was, uh, what was Sean Parker's next act? Sean Parker's next act was go in and try and get this tax break as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was really the first major initiative of President Trump's administration when he assumed office. So that effort was successful. As a matter of fact, the part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that gave birth to OZs had bipartisan sponsorship. It was Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina who is notable as the only black senator at that time he was joined by a couple of other black Republicans in Congress, but I believe as of today, Tim Scott is the only black Republican member of either the Senate or the House. He was a co-sponsor of that bill alongside Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey. So what they did was they introduced the bill into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and even though Booker did not end up voting for the entire package, he was a general supporter of the OZ program, and the all-Republican um, votes in the Senate and House, 
then went ahead and, and passed the uh, DOZ program into law. So what does it say, right? What it says is if uh, the governor of each of the 50 states and all of the U.S. territories designates a certain part of the state as an opportunity zone, all these tax breaks come into play. And that now gets into your question of where do I find the OZs? So the OZ designation progress was the summer of 2018. That's long over. So what you can now do is you can go to the CDFI map, right? And CDFI is, the, is an abbreviation. stands for Community Development Fund Initiatives. And it is a division of the United States Treasury. So treasury.gov has an official CDFI map. And you can go ahead and you can play around with the map and find out if your property sits in an opportunity zone. And I will get to the implications of what it means if your property is in an opportunity zone in a moment. But the CDFI map is the official map. There are third-party maps that you can Google. I find a couple of them to be reliable. There are major accounting firms who have their maps. One of the accounting firms that has been on top of a lot of different special programs that are in the real estate world forever is Novogratic and Company, and that company uh, named after its founder uh, is particularly prominent from the accounting side in the opportunity zone industry and they have a good map that I generally find to be reliable. But you don't want to go off third-party maps that are from other sources if you could help it because you never know if people have a hidden agenda or you never know if they're transmitting the data properly. So the CDFI map is the official map. And ultimately, if we're going to go check up on, on a property and see whether it's in an OZ, we use the CDFI's map. Okay, so it's a CDFI, so, and that's treasury.gov, folks. That's where you want to go to check if a property is in the OZ. Yep, and that's, and that's where you can find out. It, the map is a little bit unwieldy. It's an XML, which is not a user-friendly type of format. But if you play around with it enough, you can probably get the hang of it. But if you don't, if you go to the Novogratic a map or if you go to a similar third-party map that really comes from a reputable source, you'll probably be able to make do. Okay. So <clears throat> we have a property. It's in an OZ. As a seller, I want to know this because there are potential uh, additional benefits to drive revenue. As a purchaser, I have a capital gain. Let's, let's start there. What? Because this is a, a big misnomer. What qualifies as a capital gain? It's not just the sale of real estate, right? So let's run that down. Sure. So there's nuances, like you mentioned, at every turn, and this is one of them. It begins, what the government said was we want to stimulate activity on both the sell side and the buy side. The sell side is investor has a capital gain. Capital gain is from the sale of any capital asset. It need not be real estate. The capital asset could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be a business interest, it could be, a, it could be collectibles. Collectible coins, artwork, it could be collectible cars. If you keep a car collection, you sell one of your cars, you can reinvest that money with tax advantages into an opportunity zone. There is a very wide variety of assets and asset classes classified as capital because the general rule is if an asset is not ordinary, it is capital. So the default rule says every asset you own is capital unless there's a rule that says it's ordinary. And ordinary income is what you would consider to be some pretty obvious stuff, including inventory. Inventory, a lot of people think of like, you know, I'm, I'm going in, I'm manufacturing widgets. The widgets are my inventory. In the real estate world, Inventory is residential subdivisions. If you're in there and you're taking a plot of land, break it all down into single-family homes, start selling off the single-family homes. Single-family homes are inventory. It's not a capital asset. Condos, same thing, right? I'm the sponsor of a condo. I go to the New York Attorney General. I submit an offering plan, and the Attorney General rubber stamps and says, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead and do your offering plan. You construct a building, you break down the building into several condo units, you start selling off the condo units. That's inventory. That is ordinary income. And not only that, it's ineligible for both opportunity zones and 1031. That hurts. Right. So it adds an extra layer of risk to any of these types of developments. But all other types of real estate are generally going to be capital gain or treated as capital gain. 
Um, I'll give you another exception: fix and flip. If you build, if you buy a single-family home, you fix it all up, you you flip it out to a, a another buyer. That's generally inventory, also. So right. You so can, you know, same treatment. So right? a, a good a good bar um, or a, a good place to use as a point of reference is if there is the intent to rent the property that will generally be the first threshold so fix and flips wouldn't qualify subdivisions like Matthew's saying when you're breaking them up you're selling off individual plots wouldn't qualify um, however if you had a fix and flip and you for whatever reason decided to rent it and you collected rent for X period of time, speak to Matthew and or your accountant to figure out what gets you qualified, what gets you beyond that barrier where you had a clear intent to rent and it is now a capital gain in your real estate portfolio, you've sold it, um, or your coin collection, your car collection, your artwork, your wine collection, whatever it may be. Okay, we've now established that we have a event. We have a taxable event, a capital gain. Um, do I need to go get an escrow agent like in a 1031 exchange or can I do this without an escrow agent? No, your money's fungible. Good time for a disclaimer, by the way. The appearance itself does not give rise to any attorney-client relationship. I'm not giving out legal advice or tax advice today. Everything's general information, and don't sue me. Informational um, purposes only. So with that Check out of the way, your, yes, uh, your money is fungible. You don't need to use a qualified intermediary like in a 1031. The interesting part as well is that in a 1031, you have to um, exchange your entire gross sales price. So in a 1031 exchange, if you sell for a million, no matter what your tax basis is, you have to exchange for a million dollar property in order to get full tax deferral. Otherwise, if you if you buy any amount of property less than a million, you're taxed from dollar one. On the other hand, for an OZ, you, you can take your tax basis back off the table tax-free and then only exchange or reinvest the portion of your sales price that represents the capital gain itself. That's a big advantage, especially if you're in a property like um, publicly traded stock or bonds where basis doesn't change because you don't depreciate it. So that's, that's a big thing right there. So, so I have my million dollar gain and I want to pull out, you know, $200,000 for the kid's education. I pay my, my uh, taxes to the government. I keep that balance of the money to pay for the kid's education. I have $800,000 remaining that would otherwise be a taxable event. I can bifurcate that and I can take that 800,000 out and only roll that portion of the gain into this opportunity zone, correct? Yeah, that's correct. As long as you're assuming that you have a $200,000 basis in the asset itself, then that's correct. You take your 200 grand, you pay for your kids to go to college, you take your 800 grand, you roll it into a different investment. Okay, so we, we've sold our asset, we have identified the amount of money we want to allocate to this fund, right? So we can't just go run in and buy a property in an opportunity zone. We have to set up a QOF, correct? Right. So the first step in, in investing in an opportunity zone is setting up a QOF or a qualified opportunity fund. That sounds like such a chore, but it really isn't. Setting up a qualified opportunity fund is pretty simple. It's any entity that is taxed as a corporation or a partnership. Uh, pretty easy to achieve. And then you file a two-page election with the Internal Revenue Service to be taxed as a qualified opportunity fund. And that's it. Now, does my does the, the asset that I'm selling, does it have to be in the QOF prior to the sale? Or can I close the property and then put whatever money I want to shelter into the new QOF? Yeah, so let's let's clarify that a little bit. The asset that you sell in order to give rise to the capital gain can be located anywhere or it can be an intangible like stocks. You can sell an asset that's anywhere across the country or across the world if it gives rise to United States-based capital gain, right? International investors are eligible for this, but they must have United States-based capital gain. And then once you've secured that capital gain event, when you reinvest the money, you can reinvest the money into an opportunity fund and the opportunity fund, right, through a subsidiary, which I'll talk about, can close on a property that you didn't previously own or it can do work on a property that you did own 
in, inside of the opportunity zone. Although the friendliest way under the statute to get all this done is to buy a property from somebody unrelated, right? You can't buy a property from someone related to you. So a lot of people in the, in the early days of the law read everything in the law and said, it sounds like I have to buy a property I did not previously own. But what happens if I already own property in the OZ and I want to use money to develop it? There are ways to do it in either scenario, but the legal structuring is different. And we can get into that, but you could either take that QOF, form a subsidiary, and then buy property that somebody else owns and then develop that property, or you could develop your own existing property depending on how the structuring goes. Okay, so to be clear, if it's going to be super clean, you are taking this gain and you're going to be purchasing a new entity at an arm's length transaction. This is not your sister's property. In a, in a pristine case, you're going to be buying something at an arm's length transaction. You took your gain, you put it into your QOF, which people, it's not hard to get set up. You should contact Matthew and get your QOFs set up. In the event you have a gain, you can put the money into the QOF and should an opportunity arise in the opportunity zone, you are already set up with a, a, a certified QOF and you make your investment. So the idea here, and I think we should clarify for the audience and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm certainly not the expert, but I've listened enough to what you've had to say uh, over the last year or so to, to pick up the basics. Now, I cannot take this money. This is not intended where I take this gain and I go buy a triple net bank lease and I collect my, my rents and my gain is going to be protected down the road. The intent is you have to be improving the property. You have to be creating jobs with this investment, correct? That is correct. So the basic way that the statute works is that once the money is in the QOF, and we should talk about the parameters of getting the money in. There's a time limit, there's rules around it, and we can talk about that. But in general, opportunity funds can really only invest in a couple of different types of projects, and that's broadly it, before we start getting too fancy. Within the real estate world, you can invest in two types of projects. You can either, you can, you can do a development project in which you're going either ground up or you demo and then you build from, from the ground up anyway. So really category number one under real estate is do a development deal of some sort in which you're basically building from scratch. The second category of real estate deal that you can do is you can do a gut reno. You can do a very, very heavy reno project because the requirements say this. When you purchase a property in an OZ, you must put at least as much investment into the property as the purchase price within two and a half years of closing on it. Those are rough approximations of the rules, I should say. There are tons of nuances within each of the rules that I just mentioned. But in general, when you buy a property, you got two and a half years to go ahead and double the investment into it. I'll run through a numerical example. Buy a property for a million, you have two and a half years to put a million dollars into it. But there's even more nuance than that. I'll say one important thing. When you determine how much money has to go into the investment, you back out the value of any land. So if I buy property on Staten Island for a million, in Staten Island, the land is roughly going to be worth about 20% of the purchase price. So back out the 20%, I'm at 800 grand. The two, two and a half years requires me to put 800 grand into the property as an additional investment, not just the purchase money I paid. It's 800 grand of purchase money, but then it's 800 grand on top of my purchase money to do a development deal or to do really heavy rental. You can see here that your light rehab, your basic rental you might do in a multifamily deal. If you're getting into class C, class B multifamily, you may get in there and you may do some light rental that represents about 10 to 15% of the total purchase price. That deal doesn't work in OZ. It, it's, OZ is all about getting in there and spurring these construction jobs, really, as you mentioned when you posed the question, and building stuff in a heavy job. 
That's what the OZ rules are really going to require of you. If you're going to go um, send the triple net lease out to Bank XYZ or to Wendy's or Subway or CVS Pharmacy, it's not going to meet the compliance rules and all your tax benefits are going to be blown. All right. So let me just, uh, again, for a point of clarification. Now, you can buy a piece of property, folks, and you can build the Wendy's or the bank and then lease it to them and be protected. You just cannot buy the property, not do the work. So again, a safe parameter is dollar for dollar. So if you're buying a piece of property for a million dollars and you're building a million dollar building and then you're gonna go out and triple net lease it, that's okay, but you have to be building the asset. So, so it's dollar for dollar, whatever the purchase price is into the improvement. Matthew, what about soft costs? What about architects, engineers? Very expensive. I'll get into soft costs in a moment, but I do wanna uh, put out a point of clarification for you. Even if you do a development of a brand new building for Bank XYZ, a triple net lease is still not okay, and I will tell you why. Really? Because, yes, and I'll tell you why. Because when you do an OZ project, you must be running a trade or business for tax purposes. Triple net lease is an investment. It is a quote-unquote mere investment for tax purposes. And therefore, you cannot triple net lease to a bank or a fast food restaurant or a pharmacy Instead, you have to have a lease in which the landlord is responsible at minimum for the payment, not necessarily the funding, but the payment of property taxes, insurance, structural repairs, general maintenance, such as the lawn mowing, the snow removal, and the like. And it's got to be the landlord who's ultimately the actor on this. The tenant can reimburse the landlord for making these payments. But at minimum, the landlord's got to be responsible for the day-to-day maintenance on the property. It doesn't take much, but in a triple net lease, it really is not going to work because if the, if the landlord has a zero responsibility for day-to-day maintenance of the property, it will not be considered a trade or business for tax purposes, and therefore, it will not meet the OZ rules. That is a little-known fact. So um, thank you for that clarification. So I can build the building. I can lease it to a bank. It has to be a gross lease. I have to be responsible for the payments, the maintenance, the snow removal, the taxes, so on and so forth. I certainly But you don't have to be financially responsible. You just have just to have act to on those things. Got so it. if you go out and you secure somebody to come in and remove the snow, but you bill the tenant for it, that's okay. Got it. As long as you were the one who went ahead and secured the snow removal services, similar to insurance, you can go out, you can secure the insurance yourself, and you can make the tenant pay for it, right? So in that respect, a single net lease is fine. Got it. Whereby, okay, I'm acting on behalf of the tenant, really, at the end of the day, but I'm making the tenant pay for everything. That's fine as long as you're the one doing it, really. You know, you're out there and say, okay, fine, I, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to gross up my, my rent to make sure that I can cover these expenses, but I'm the one who's actually going out there and doing all of these things. That's fine. It's really about action. It's not about dollars and cents. Because similarly speaking, if you had an arrangement where the landlord would be financially responsible, but the tenant would go out and choose all of these things, the landlord merely paying those expenses still isn't even enough. And it's, it. it's a really, really fine distinction, but in tax law, it's definitely a thing. It's been litigated enough. Okay, so we have the ability here to put this investment in whole or part into our QOF that we're all going to contact Matt to get opened up. And now what happens with the, the, the real, with the taxes? The, ta- the, the piper has to be paid, right? Taxes have to be paid. When, how, what does that look like? What deferrals are available? How, how does that work? Yeah, so let's, let's take everybody through the sequence for a second. When you get a capital gain on the sale of any capital asset, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago, the capital gain must, and again, only the gain portion. You can take your basis off the table tax-free. It's the gain portion that has to then be deferred. So what do you have to do with the gain portion? What you have to do is you have to reinvest it into your QOF within 180 days of the 
taxable event that gave you capital gain. But unlike a 1031 exchange in which the 180 days is a hard deadline, what that means is starts on the day you sold, ends 180 days later, come hell or high water, the only exception is a, uh, is a federally declared disaster, of which COVID-19 is one, by the way. But a federally declared disaster will be the only thing that gets you out of the 180 days for 1031 exchanges. In the opportunities of the world, the 180 days is a flexible measure, whereby depending on what the gain was and where it came from, taxpayer might have some flexibility. In some scenarios, the taxpayer has to meet the 180 days and it's a hard deadline. Um, in other scenarios, the taxpayer can choose for the 180 day clock to start at differing times. Let me give you an example of that. If I sell stock out of my individual brokerage account, the 180 day timer is hard. Starts the day I sold it, ends 180 days later, there's nothing I can do about it. Alternatively, if I invest in a hedge fund that has tons of stocks in it, and I get a K1 from the hedge fund, my 180 days will start when my hedge fund sells a single share of stock that gives rise to capital gain, or alternatively, it can start at, on December 31st of that taxable year, or alternatively still, it could start on March 15th, which is the day that the hedge fund's tax return is due. And by that time, I will have received my own K-1 to tell me how much capital gain actually came out of that hedge fund. So there are ways to tinker with the rules a little bit so that the 180 days, it, it might start at one time. At the taxpayer's election, it might start at a different time. And those rules get a little bit complicated. But as long as you've met the 180-day requirement, you go ahead, you put that money into an opportunity fund. The first thing that happens is the payment of those capital gains on your tax return is delayed. And delayed for how long? Okay, so I just want to pause here for a minute so that, that everyone understands how radically different this is from any other program we've had before and how unbelievably beneficial it is to be able to hold on to your capital during that period of time. So unlike a 1031, and 1031s have, have an awful lot of merit to them, but as an alternative, when you're selling the, 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 the asset and you have your gain, your basis can come out. That's a difference. You can take your basis out, put it in your pocket. Instead of having to pay the capital gain now, you would have from now until 2026, theoretically, to use that money to generate the revenue that otherwise would have had to have been paid at the time of the taxable event at the end of the year when you had to declare. So you're able to hold on to that money that otherwise you would have had to pay in tax and put it to work for you. So you've picked up now several years through this investment where you're able to use that money that you otherwise would have had to pay at the end of the year to help generate the tax that will be paid in 2026, correct? It's correct. And the usage of capital aspect of this and the idea that you get the time value of money is unquestionably a benefit because if you make the deferral in 2020, you've got a six-year window 
to go out there and start getting investment returns on, on what is basically a tax-free or interest-free loan from the government. And that's big. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily move the needle for everybody, right? That's benefit number one. Benefit number two is similar. It's a nice thing to have. I don't know if it necessarily moves the needle. Benefit number two says if you invest by the end of 2021, you get a 10% discount off the capital gains once they are due. There was a window prior to the end of 2019 to get an extra 5%. That window has since passed. But if you invest by the end of 2021, you still get a 10% discount off those capital gains in the event that you hold all the way to the end of 2026. And that's a nice thing to have. So if I make this investment, Matthew, again, to be clear, the 19 window closed. If I make this investment in my QOF and we place the money by the end of 2021, I get the benefit of an additional 10% reduction on what my tax gain would have been if I paid it today, correct? That is correct, right? So if you had a wow. bill that would have been, you know, $300,000 to the, you know, the IRS in New York State and New York City, then if you invest by the end of 2021 and you hold all the way through the end of 2026, then instead of 300 grand, you're cutting a check for 270. Wow. Which is nice. You know, again, these first two benefits are nice. They're good. They're certainly better than nothing. But it is the third benefit that drives all the investment in this program. And that says, once your deferred capital gain amount has been taxed and paid, when you hit a 10-year holding period for your QOF investment, all of the profit on your investment is tax-free. That is where the 800-pound gorilla is. That's what, why everybody loves this program and is so interested in it is because it is the only it's, it's the only place in the tax code that is widely applicable that allows you to invest with tax-free profit and it is the only place where the tax-free profit has no limit there's no numerical limit on this so even though this is a podcast about real estate you can also think about the idea that opportunity funds are allowed to invest in operating businesses as well, which is really what we didn't get to, and it's a side topic when it comes to this particular program. But if you're in a QOF and you invest in the next Google and it blows up and it IPOs, you can invest without any limits on the tax-free profit. In tech companies, there's a little-known section of the code, section 1202, that allows you to invest and get a lot of money tax-free on your exit strategy, but not unlimited. There's a cap on it. In the OZ program, there is no cap. No matter how much you profit from this, if you meet all the rules, the profit can be tax-free. So you can imagine if you're out there modeling what the return would look like if you took really federal, state, and local taxes out of it, the only prominent exceptions to that being California and Massachusetts, they're two of the four states, and I honestly forget the other two. They are two of the four states at the, at the local level that do not recognize the program. So federal taxes would be exempt in that scenario, but in California, you'd still have to pay their massive state and local taxes. All right, so uh, we, we have to spend a little bit more time on this. Let's deal with the real estate holding first, then let's get back into the business holding because that is very relevant in uh, a lot of our clients own their own businesses. They invest in other businesses. So I do want to cover both. So we've identified, we've got our QOF, we're making the investment, we're improving the property. 2026 comes along. We pay our portion of the taxes. We got it done uh, prior to 2021. We enjoyed our 10% discount. Now, at what point does the gain become tax-free no matter when you invest it it becomes tax-free when you've held it for 10 years but the thing is of course you have to invest by the end of 2026 to be eligible for the program in the first place but as long as you're in hit yourself a 10-year holding period and then once you're there every ounce of profits tax-free you've already paid your deferred capital gain no matter what you can't get out of that that's a big 
notable part of this program that all the listeners should understand. The amount of capital gain that you deferred will always be taxable. There's nothing you can do. I should actually put a caveat on that. What you can do is you can time your losses or you can carry forward your operating losses. You could sell assets. You could loss harvest. There's things you can do in the taxable year 2026 to try and wipe out your tax bill. But generally speaking, under the OZ statute, unless you've got a corresponding loss in, in the year 2026, there's really nothing you can do to get rid of the capital gain. It's still going to get recognized. It's just a question of whether it's going to get offset. So you've paid your capital gain, but when you hit your 10-year holding period, all your profit is tax-free. So I just want to, to, to let's let's go to numbers, Matt. So a million dollar investment is made. A million dollars in improvements are made on top of that. Now those in, so okay, I have a million dollar gain. I put my million dollars. I buy a piece of real estate. Now I have to put another million dollars in to improve it. First of all, yeah, roughly check, speaking, yeah, the, the, uh, roughly right. So does does that million dollars have to be qualified money? Well, it has to be qualified in, insofar as it has to be, if you're talking about the improvement money, improvement, the improvement money, money can be debt. It can be debt. You know, it, yeah, the money that comes in really, as long as all of the equity capital gain, right, you can source the rest of the money with debt. So if you're, if you're going to get enough construction financing, you can put in 600 grand of equity. You could take out 400 grand in a purchase money mortgage and get construction financing for a million dollars. Okay. And, and still get a hundred percent tax-free treatment at the end of the rainbow. Now, well, you're not going to screw. You're not going to screw anything up. Well, let, you know, a let's, lot of people ask me the question: What happens if I got out-of-pocket equity in excess of my capital gain amount? Right. So I got, you know, let's say I got a million dollars capital gain. I put one point five million into an opportunity fund. Well, then at that point, you get two-thirds, one-third. Right. Two-thirds represents capital gain money. That's good money. A third represents money that was out of your pocket. That's not good money. Therefore, when you um, when you go ahead and you sell down at the end of the rainbow, you're only two-thirds qualified. Therefore, two-thirds of your profits tax-free, right? That's what happens when you've got equity that comes from a different source that is not capital gain. Uh -huh. However, if I put 100% capital gain equity into my QOF, and I go out and I borrow money for any purpose, that's not going to screw me up in terms of my tax benefits. Right, I'll so, still be in good shape. So let, let's keep it simple. A million-dollar gain... We go in, we buy the property, we borrow a million dollars, we improve the property. 2026 comes, we pay whatever our gain would have been. Now we get to 2030 or 2031 and we want to sell the asset. The asset is now worth $15 million. What's my exposure? Well, the exposure is you're, you're of course, you've paid your capital gain. Um, you've paid your capital gain already. Mm-hmm. Because by the time you hit your 10-year holding period, that's already over and done with. Right. And by that point, just recap for me for a second to make sure I heard you right. Give me your delta there. Give me your profit number at that point, right? So you've got, you know, you got what? You got a million dollars of equity in. It's 2031. You're at, you're at a $15 million investment now, correct? Correct. If you've got debt on it, right, you still have debt on it. You got to go and you got to pay back the bank. Under normal circumstances, uh, what you might get... Uh, depending on, on whether you took depreciation deductions, if you did a cash out refinance, which we can talk about, you might have to pay taxes on the money you pay back to the bank. This is what we call phantom gain or negative capital, right? Even on phantom gain or negative capital, all of your tax is wiped out. So you're, you go out, you have a $15 million sales price. Doesn't matter how much money goes in your pocket or goes back to the bank. Your tax bill on that if you're in New York City at the moment, federal, state, and local, your tax bill on that is zero. It's nothing. All right. So, so, uh, so everybody understands this here. Now, we don't have to roll that forward in an exchange like we would in a 1031. We made our 10 years. That's our money, correct? That's your money. Put it in your pocket. Okay. So, folks, there are many, 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 many properties that are in opportunity zones on Staten Island. If you have a gain, any capital gain, again, artwork, your wine collection, cars, real estate, whatever it may be, you don't have to have an escrow agent. You contact Matt. You get your QOF set up. You now purchase a property in a QOF. You go get debt. 
to equal dollar for dollar what you use to purchase this property. You hold on to your money until 2026, at which time you pay your capital gain on the initial transaction and you hold it for 10 years and sell it, you are tax free. That is absolutely unbelievable. This is a tool that needs to be used way beyond what it's being used for here in Staten Island. There are many, many, many demographics that are poised for an absolute explosion on Staten Island where if you properly place this money, you don't have to continue to roll it forward. So, wow. Okay. Now, James, I'll do you, I'll do you one better. You can't, you, you can't you do one better. Show's over. You don't even, <laughs> you don't even have to form your own QOF. You can invest in somebody else's. So if you don't even want to go through the hassle of going through your own QOF, you don't have to. You can go through the Cassandra Properties QOF. So we can take other investors money, put it into our QOF and they get the tax benefit. Yeah, sure. What are we doing? This is unbelievable. Okay. So you've got me really excited here. Let's, let's put the, the real estate transaction on the side for a minute. Let's assume again, we had a gain. Now we want to invest in or open a business in an opportunity zone. How does that work? When you're opening a business in an opportunity zone, the business must be started from scratch or it has to be relocated from outside the zone into the zone. So it's the same concept as real estate. You can't simply buy a business and sit on it and operate it as you once did. If you want to buy an existing business, there are very, very complicated rules about how you can qualify it and I'm not going to go over that in this forum. Rather, the simple way to put it is if you're going to start a business and get credit for that business um, the same way, the same tax benefits we just talked about, the business has to be started new within the OZ or taken from outside the OZ and relocated into it. Okay. So we now also, have started a new business. We found some tech, you know, geniuses and we're, we're giving them seed capital and we're starting a business in a building in the opportunity zone that we, by the way, deferred another gain in and where we're now building, the space is ready. We locate the business there. Now what? Now, effectively, what you have to do is you have to meet a couple of different compliance rules. The first one is that you have to be operating a business that is not a sin business. Luckily, this is a very, very narrowly defined term that actually does not include certain things you figure would be on it. What is included on the list of sin businesses, golf courses, country clubs, racetracks, gambling parlors, liquor stores, not restaurants, but liquor stores, not bars, but liquor stores, because they're defined as any facility in which alcohol is sold for consumption off the premises. In addition to that, uh, sin businesses include spa facilities, hot tub facilities, and I believe there's one more, but generally th that's the list. So what's not included on that list are things like cannabis. So we have some opportunity zone deals that involve cannabis businesses or cannabis adjacent businesses. Our position, which is not shared by the Treasury of the Secretary, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, is that cannabis businesses, if they are not explicitly listed in the OZ statute, they are okay to go into the OZ program because you didn't say that it was prohibited. And we have been advising a couple of different cannabis enterprises. In New York currently, cannabis is not legal at the state level, but we've been advising folks in Colorado, the state of Washington, and a couple of other jurisdictions where cannabis is legal, at least at the state level. It's still federally illegal. And my response to the Secretary of the Treasury when he came out and proclaimed that OZ benefits were not meant for cannabis businesses was that, sir, the first OZ benefits will hit in 2028, and by that time, you will not be Treasury Secretary anymore. <laughs> so I have given the green light to cannabis to go forward with this stuff. But in addition to that, there are other businesses that you could argue prey on the poor that are still eligible for OZ treatment and can go into some of these economically depressed areas, including coin laundromats, precious metal exchanges, pawn shops, gentlemen's clubs, 
I mean, all these different things are theoretically eligible, even though there's this category of quote-unquote sin businesses, but those things are not included. So beyond that narrow field of sin businesses, you can be in any business you want, broadly speaking. Based on some other compliance requirements, you cannot have holding companies for intangibles. I've been approached a couple times for people who want holding companies for intellectual property, patents, uh, licenses, things along those lines. They say, oh, I want a holding company and I'll locate it in an OZ with a skeleton office. Uh, I don't believe the IRS is going to let you get away with that. Um, investment style businesses, if you have a hedge fund, some private equity could be structured the right way, but hedge funds, financial advisory businesses, they, they're generally not well suited. But other than that, I mean, you could put basically any business in there that you want. And you have to make sure that you meet a couple of safe harbors. The first safe harbor is that your general headquarters is located there. You really can't have physical locations outside of an OZ unless they are small satellite offices. Broadly, you have to include the entire business and its headquarters inside of the OZ. Furthermore, you have to have all of its property inside of the OZ. There are exceptions for businesses where they take the property on the road. Construction equipment, uh, you know, car rentals and other sorts of equipment rentals, uh, things like that. There's exceptions in there for that stuff to help them qualify. But broadly speaking, your headquarters and your property have to be located inside of the zone and you have to make sure that you're deriving income from inside of the zone. That does not exclude internet-based businesses. If you're an internet retailer, or you're generally a tech business, you're still gonna be in okay shape. But you gotta make sure that you're meeting these several compliance requirements in order to run the business in the zone. But it's really not terribly hard to do. And once you go ahead and you meet those requirements, same tax benefits are gonna apply. The three tax benefits we talked about earlier. Deferral of capital gain, a haircut if you invest prior to the end of 2021 and a 10-year tax-free exit. And for businesses, here's what I tell people. Real estate is a very attractive investment class. The majority, by a pretty good margin, of the OZ projects that I've been advising on have been real estate projects. But the thing is that operating businesses tend to 100X and real estate tends not to 100X. And when you 100x on something tax-free, that's that's a really really nice benefit. So your income annually, of course, you have to pay income tax on. When you go to sell the business itself down the road, we hit on the next Facebook, the next Twitter. We have it in the OZ. We're operating ten years down the line. We sell the business for you know eight hundred million dollars. That that would be a tax-free event. That's correct. And to hammer it home, I think two things. One, you put forth the answer to a common question, which is, is my operating income also tax-free? The answer is no, as the business produces income or the real estate produces rental income or whatever it is, all of that is taxed as normal. So I'm glad you got that out of the way. But to hammer this home, the single best strategy that you can do in an opportunity zone is the incubator because it's a real estate strategy and it's a business strategy. You go ahead, you take out your retrofit, real estate, whether it's a warehouse or a loft or something, to be a space like Y Combinator. Or if you're on Long Island like I am, Launchpad Long Island, for instance, where all of the different startups, they get space for free, but you take a little slice of their equity in order to provide mentorship, in order to lease the space out to them, in order to do a whole bunch of other stuff. And if that real estate is located in an OZ, and you're making a token capital investment that meets all of the compliance rules for deferral of capital gain, then you can have your cake and you can eat it too. You can get benefits on the appreciation and the value of the real estate, but you can also get a slice of these OZ businesses and your incubator is more popular than the others because you can offer this tax break to the businesses that operate in them. And there's been a couple of people I've seen hatch the idea, but I haven't seen anybody really execute on it thus far but the biggest run in the oz program is the incubator idea All right, well, because you get the best of both worlds well, you get to take on the real estate you get to buy the real estate fix it up you get to retrofit it for all these startups to come into it but in addition to that you also get to shoot the moon and you get to take a slice of these businesses that might become the next google all right so well you you have now met the first one that's gonna take a shot at this and i could tell you folks keep an eye out for the Cassandra Properties QOF, because it's coming. Petey's over in the corner in the ones and twos. He's even smiling. 
Pete never smiles. So this is uh, something that we're absolutely. That's big. Yeah, you know, it big. is big. If you know Pete, he, he doesn't smile much. We don't let him out often. But uh, he's over there with a big old smile on his face. He sees the birdies flying around in my head. He knows what he has to do. So we're going to absolutely get this rolling. This is unbelievably exciting. It's out there, and it's not getting the traction that it should, which is why I wanted to have you join us today. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, what is the what's happening now with the the state legislature that it's being challenged or what, what are the possible uh, bombshells here if any uh with what's being proposed now yeah there's a bill that has been introduced at the new york state level to follow the lead of california and massachusetts in prohibiting the recognition of opportunity zone tax benefits for new york state purposes so if, if that bill had passed if you did a New York State Opportunity Zone investment at the end of the rainbow, you'd still have to pay state capital gain taxes, which usually don't get a preferential rate. State capital gains, the tax is the same as ordinary rates. There's no difference. So in the exit of an OZ investment in New York State, if the bill passes, you'd have to pay state taxes, but not federal. That would probably also apply to the city for the record as well. So there's a 3.8% top rate in the city and you have to pay the city. All right. So, so give us a, I, give us the math there, just yeah, percentage wise. Yeah, the math, the math is that the 3.8% top rate at the city, the 8.8% top rate, or almost 8.9% top rate at the, at the New York state level. If you got a New York city OZ investment, you're looking at about 13%, which is a decent, chunk on the way out and if that bill passes it's going to dampen the environment a little bit you know my speculation is i don't know how well equipped new york is to pass any further revenue raiser that's going to depress economic activity if you notice in the wake of 9 11 and in the wake of the financial crisis new york city's renaissance was led by opening the floodgates to the real estate industry. Yep. And I think everybody in the legislature, even the types that are ultra progressive, understand deep down that they can't take any further measures to try and extract money, extract money from real from estate, real estate investments, investments and, and discourage investment. investment. Those measures are already in place to some extent because there were changes to the real estate transfer tax rules at the city level. There have been changes that have been proposed, some of which have been passed, some of which haven't. Things like the pay-to-tear tax, the all sorts of other ideas, the rent controls, for instance, and the uh, the improvements as to whether you can break rent control and how quickly changing the return on investment models for private equity and rent controlled and rent stabilized housing. There have been some big hits to investment real estate at the city and the state level over the last couple of years as the market has heated up so much. And right now, I think in a period where values are sales are slowing down and investment is decreasing it's a little tough to pile on and say well on top of that we're also going to do another thing that discourages capital coming from outside New York uh, into New York in order to build up the real estate industry that helped rescue this city after some of the hardest times it's seen that strikes me as a little bit difficult. And into low-income low demographics where these OZs have been identified, it would be absolutely, utterly criminal at this point to levy any other impediments to investment here. The city is in need of a shot in the arm big time. And this is the type of stuff that if it catches fire, it can provide exactly what we're looking for. Well, that's the logic, but... It, you wonder if that's what goes through the city legislature, the state legislature. You wonder if that's what goes through their heads. You look at what happened with Amazon, for instance, and what the reaction was around Amazon. And Amazon had something on the order of 75% popular support. And yet it still saw some backlash from some vocal uh, folks in, in progressive circles. So... 
it's going to be an interesting environment for sure. The pandemic has brought about an unprecedented set of circumstances and nobody really knows what's next. Yep. No, certainly, certainly we can't say what's next. That bill could be something. Yeah, it it certainly can. It would be, uh, the Amazon deal was in a different economic climate than we are today. This is a very different world that we're living in. So look, folks, now you know about it, right? If it's something that you, you want to take advantage of, it's something you want to get involved in, get vocal. Get, get in touch with your local elected officials and let them know where you stand on the issue. Um, you know, we can't continue to sit back and complain about the legislative changes and not be proactive in making sure that the voices are heard, not advocating for or against, but let's get out there and make sure our voices are heard. I certainly would be in favor of keeping and protecting this. This is an unbelievable uh, opportunity. Again, I keep saying opportunity, even though I keep thinking, don't say opportunity, but there it is. This is an unbelievable opportunity to take advantage of. uh, And it's, it's coming at a time that I think we need it more than ever. So we are absolutely going to be in touch on this to get this moving forward formally. And Matthew, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach out? Email by far. I am at my initials, M-E-R at S like Frank, R like Robert, B like Brian, the word law.com. So that's M-E-R at F-R-B law.com. All right, folks, M-E-R at F-R-B-Law.com. That's how you can reach out to Matthew. Matt, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll be in touch soon. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I love a return engagement. We didn't even get to 1031s. We have a 1031 program. Well, we have a lot a lot of follow-up we can do, and, and we'll make sure we get you back on in the interim. Uh, thanks for your time. Congratulations on the newborn, and stay safe.